Our Bible reading tonight comes from Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. This is God's word. I think I got my first telescope when I was about 11 or 12, and I've always loved just the idea of looking out into the universe and seeing just the amazing size of the thing. I remember looking through the telescope for my first time and seeing the rings of Saturn and just knowing from books just how big that really is and how the solar system is just one tiny speck in our galaxy and how the galaxy is just one speck in the greater universe and just what a testament to God's amazing power. Um, But it's amazing to think that there are even smaller things in the universe, tiny things that when you zoom in and you look at them, they're almost like a universe in and of themselves. And so I'm going to entrust this little clicker now. Here we go. That's behind me. Wonderful. That's pollen, you know, zoomed in through a microscope. And you look at that and think, wow, tiny bits of pollen. That's what's making some of us sneeze like crazy come springtime. I mean, no wonder some of them are so spiky. You can just imagine them now. That's what's doing it. It's up in my nose and causing that. But zoomed in, how amazing does that look? This is the eye of a fruit fly. How does that work? Like having little spikes or hairs on your, on your eye. I mean, if you wanted to blink, wouldn't that just be annoying to have your eyelids cover that and How that works, I have no idea, but zoomed in, that's what it looks like. And this one, snowflake. And and you look at that and you just think, that is amazing. And there's that saying, no two snowflakes are alike. They're all different. They're all intricate. Um, That is truly amazing. And if you were to able to zoom in even more into these elements, you would eventually come to the very building blocks that make up all of these tiny little things. You would come to atoms themselves, the tiniest little bricks, and they make up you, me, and everything all around us. Rocks, paper, metal, air, and everything. But scientists today are trying to zoom in to the atom even further. And the way that they're trying to do this is that they're trying to smash atoms into each other to try and break the atoms into smaller pieces so that they can see what those pieces are like. And so over in Switzerland, they've invented this circular tunnel, which is about 27 kilometers in length. And its purpose is to send atoms round and round and round and round and round in these tunnels going near the speed of light 
the atoms they go around and then they use magnets to make these atoms go and come into each other's paths until boom they smash into each other and they explode and then the scientists they analyze what they discover looking into the very heart of the atom tonight we are going to be looking into the very heart the central heart of the gospel the gospel is the momentous news that the entirety of our christian faith is built on now i wonder if you were ever asked by someone what is the gospel what would you tell them how would you answer that question Now, of course, there are many features of the gospel that people might mention. You know, the gospel is about how God came to give us fullness of life. It's about forgiveness of sins, the future resurrection, eternal life, God's kingdom reign and peace or shalom on earth. It's about reconciliation. It's about God's grace. And while all of these things might be true features of the gospel we still haven't gotten to the very heart of the gospel that makes all of those things around it possible. That central thing that we call substitutionary atonement of Jesus. Substitutionary atonement. That Jesus, on the cross took the full punishment that we deserve for our sins as a substitute in our place, thus completely satisfying God's wrath and justice that were against us. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, says that substitution is not a theory of the atonement. It is rather the heart of of the atonement itself none of the surrounding features could exist without it and he's right without the payment of for sin being made by jesus blood in our place there simply wouldn't be a kingdom of god because there'd be no subjects in his kingdom to rule over there'd be no forgiveness no resurrection, no grace, no fullness of life, no shalom, no reconciliation. Simply put, there would be no good news at all. There would be no gospel without substitutionary atonement. So back to that question. If someone was to ask you, what is the gospel? How might you answer? Maybe in one sentence. That's really hard to do, actually. And I tried for a while to think about this. But then I came across a, a sentence Um, that I just couldn't improve on from a, a Christian theologian, Kevin DeYoung, who puts it like this. He summarizes the gospel. The holy God sent his righteous son to die for unrighteous sinners so that we can be holy and live happily with God forever. I thought that was an excellent summary and one worth committing to memory. The holy God sent his righteous son to die for unrighteous sinners so that we can be holy and live happily with God forever. So at the very heart of the gospel, the very core atom of the gospel is substitutionary atonement. 
Jesus' death in our place for our sins. However, I'm wondering, can we go even deeper? Can we smash that atom open and see if there's more glorious detail inside that will cause us to grow even more in thankfulness and more in worship of Jesus? And I think one particular verse, which we'll mainly focus on from the reading we just heard, does that very thing, and it's found in verse 13 of Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So there it is. Deeper in the heart of substitutionary atonement is Christ became a curse for us. This is at the core for how he atones for our sins. So let's unpack this amazing event. Firstly, what is a curse? You know, that verse speaks of the curse of the law, but what is this curse of the law? And what is it to even be cursed in the first place? You know, today when we think about curses, we think about things like someone or something being under some kind of spell or uh, something that brings you bad luck or misfortune. So sometimes you hear someone say something like, oh, that football team, oh, they're cursed at the moment. You know, they're just having this bad streak. They cannot win anything. Or you might hear someone say about another person, oh, did you hear so-and-so, he lost his job, his car broke down, and now he's sick in hospital all in one day. He is cursed, isn't he? Now, I should point out that any superstitious idea of cursing and the notion that someone can be supernaturally cursed like that with bad luck has no place in how reality works according to Scripture. But the Bible does, in fact, speak a lot about curse. Starting back in Genesis chapter 3, where we first hear it mentioned, you remember Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command, and because of that, he curses the serpent in Genesis 3.14. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And very quickly after that, in verse 17, God curses the ground, the earth, To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So notice that repetition. Because you did this, curse. Because you did that, curse. What did they do? Well, they rebelled and they disobeyed. So because of sin, a curse from God follows. And you flip forward to Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28 where it becomes even more explicit that curse from God is what follows after sin. So that's the condition for when cursing comes. It comes in response to violating God's law. But now the second question is, what is the nature of this curse? What does it do? Well, primarily God's curse condemns. It destroys. It's it's to lose God's favor. 
and consequently any blessings that would come from him. R.C. Sproul, who's recently passed away, once helpfully pointed out that to understand just what it is to be cursed by God, you have to contrast it with what it means to be blessed by God. Since to bless is the antithesis or the complete opposite of what it means to curse. So you read, for example, the blessing given to the Israelites in Numbers chapter 6, which says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace give you peace a condition of being totally in god's loving favor experiencing well-being and preservation by him and kindness from him that's what it is for him to bless now if you want to understand what it is for god to do the opposite to curse then look what happens when you take those verses and flip them into their opposites. So Sproul commented that for God to curse would sound like this. The Lord curse you and abandon you. The Lord look upon you with wrath and withhold all mercy from you. The Lord turn his face away from you and give you misery. What an absolutely horrible state to be in. To be under God's curse, where there is no hope, where there is no mercy. Just God's justice, wrath, and abandonment. You couldn't imagine today, even with all the ugly things that we see in the world, a more horrific thing than being under the curse of the holy creator God. The effects of it in this life now and the full effect of it later when one steps into eternity. So when our passage speaks of the curse of the law, the curse is the penalty and consequence that comes from breaking God's law. God has given mankind his requirements and his laws for right living. And his law, like every civil law that we have today, is joined to certain penalties for breaking it. And anyone who violates his good and right law becomes the recipient of the just wrath of the lawgiver. God's good law is now against you if you violate it. So here's the big question for all of us here. Have you ever violated God's law? Ever? Even once? Ever lied? ever stolen anything, ever downloaded something that you shouldn't have, ever looked at someone with lustful intent, anything that you know God has said not to do? If so, then apart from Jesus, 
you are under the law's curse and on very shaky ground. James chapter 2 verse 10 amplifies it even more when it says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. And yet we know that deep down we fail God's standards every day, all the time, if we're honest with ourselves. Now at this point some of us might be tempted to think, but you know what, I'm not a bad person. You know, there are worse people out there than me. And besides, surely the good that I do will outweigh the bad, right? That will surely count for something, won't it? That was basically, as I was sharing at the start there, the way that I thought when I was a teenager and how many teenagers think today I've noticed that my good works will cancel out the bad and count for something. But here we read in our passage that it counts for nothing. Absolutely nothing. In fact, verse 10 tells us that thinking like this just makes it worse. It says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Paul quoting from Deuteronomy 27 26. So if that's you, if you think you can earn points with God by doing your own good works, then you are relying on the law. You have therefore chosen to be under the law, and by doing so, you've chosen to be under curse, because all that living under the law can do is leave you still cursed, because no one can do it. So we are stuck. The law comes to us, God's law comes to us with cries of guilty, guilty, guilty. But then, the atom is split open. We come to verse 13, and it goes right to the heart of the gospel. Right to the heart of Jesus' substitution for our sin. Christ redeemed. He bought us back from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What does it mean that Christ became a curse for us? It means that he wore the sins of God's people as if they were his own. He never sinned, nor did he ever become a sinner. But when someone becomes a Christian, all of their guilt and all of their shame and disobedience, every breaking of God's law, are transferred onto him. And on that cross 2,000 years ago, he wore all of the sin of all the people who would ever throughout all time come to him. And in that moment on the cross... You could almost hear as Jesus cries out to the Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You could almost hear the reply from his Father. The Lord curse you. 
and abandon you, my son. The Lord look upon you with wrath and withhold all mercy from you, my son. The Lord turn his face away from you and give you nothing but misery and death. For all that sin you are now clothed in. He drank the full cup of God's curse, wearing the sins of God's people. The curse that would have been yours. The curse that should have been mine. Jesus paid it all. The full weight of hell and justice. And now, for anyone who is in Christ, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. They are gone forever. Buried in the tomb, never to be brought up again. Only Jesus came up out of that tomb leaving our sins buried forever behind him, never to be spoken of, never to be used to accuse you again. They are paid in full. But then it gets even better. We also hear from a similar verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21, which puts it like this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. There it is again, him becoming a curse. But then look at what else happens. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So, not only has Jesus removed our sins, my daughter's made this for me. I put it together. And he's taken our sins upon himself. And he is crushed for them. But we get something in return. God credits the redeemed person with the perfect life lived by Christ. There's a swap. He wears our sin. But in return, we get to wear his righteousness. Forever, So that now whenever God looks at someone who is in Christ, not only does he not see any sin, but he only ever sees the perfect life that Jesus lived. Now counting as if you yourself had done it. There's a hymn, I don't know if you've heard it before, it's called His Robes for Mine. Listen to how it expresses some of these, these, these things just so beautifully. His robes for mine, what cause have I for dread? God's daunting law, Christ mastered in my stead. Faultless I stand, with righteous works not mine, saved by my Lord's vicarious death and life. Vicarious simply means substitute. He as though I, cursed and left alone, I, as though he, embraced and welcomed home. Where do you even begin 
to praise and thank God for all that he's done for us in Christ. How do you personally respond today to this? Well, depending on where you stand with Christ right now, here are some responses. Firstly, for anyone here tonight who has not yet come to Christ, even though his law at this moment is on your heels, for anyone who is still trying to clean up their own lives in order to earn God's approval, even though we know and we've just seen this cannot be done, if that is you, then simply run to Christ. Put up that flag and say, I can't do this. I need your grace. Confess and turn from your sin and he will redeem you from the curse of the law. Because at the end, every breaking of God's law ever done will be accounted for and paid for someday. And when that time comes, when we all stand before God, there's only two ways it will go down. Either you pay your fine or Jesus pays it for you. There's no third option given. But for now, Jesus is offering you grace and forgiveness. He will clean you up for you. He will take and pay the curse for your sin if you ask him to. But secondly, for those who have come to him already, which I imagine is probably most of us here tonight, and you've already felt that burden of guilt and shame removed from you, then simply return his love to him with thanksgiving and praise and obedience. You know, our lives today are not our own. We have been bought at a huge cost. There's a wonderful line in the book Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if anyone here has read it. But uh, in this chapter, the main character, Christian, says of God, God, thou hast paid for me ten thousand times more than what I'm worth and he's so right for you for me God has paid ten thousand million more times the cost than what you or I are worth with the infinitely valuable son of God There is simply no higher gift, no higher price God could have paid to show the extent of his love for for us. Surely our response has to be to fall down in worship of Jesus. Not to pay him back, not to earn his favor because we've already been given it, but simply to honor him in a life of thanksgiving to him, in the way that we work, in the way that we live, in the way that we raise children, in the way that you study, in the way that you speak to your neighbor, in the way that you forgive and love the person who has wronged you. This new life he's now given to you, live it out as a thankful, obedient response to what he's already done for you. And finally, if you have come to Christ, always remember this. That this is now how God sees you. You are wearing the righteous robes of Christ. God sees you each day as righteous, pure and forgiven. 
you are fully without guilt or shame. Even when you slip up and have to say sorry again, whether it's a good day or a bad day, how he sees you and loves you does not change. It's always at 100%. And why? Because the Holy God sent his righteous son to die for unrighteous sinners so that we can be holy and live happily with God forever.